Hey, Jason. Doing it again. Another yeah, one. here we go. Another yeah. podcast. Just had a great David. one. Yes, we just had David Artman on. Um, yeah. You got the book. I haven't read it yet. I got the book. Here it is right here. Grace, Grace Saves the Necessity of Christian Universalism. <laughs> um, I mean, if that doesn't, if that title alone doesn't make you want to listen to this entire podcast, then I don't know. Your wood's yeah. wet. We, uh, <laughs> that's a good phrase. He, uh, at the end, I was thanking him uh, for, you know, writing this book and being willing to be called a heretic. And his response was, uh, it's like thanking a surfer for catching a wave. Yeah, and I right. absolutely <laughs> love that because uh, that's the gospel good news. It's like, it's it's what you said when we had Baxter on. It's like, I've already tasted the good stuff. Like, like there's no going back. And um, I loved that perspective on this conversation about Christian universalism. A dynamite interview conversation. Um, definitely going to recommend his book. Uh, it, it, I, I'm going to be buying probably copies by the caseload and handing them out to people so that I don't have to try and have a five hour conversation with each individual. Uh, he lays out and presents a Christian universalism from the earliest days of the early church. That was kind of not, um, a light issue. It was a highly regarded concept and in some ways almost understood. Um, yeah. so let him tell the story, but uh, this is a great interview. And if you've ever wondered if grace saves all, then uh, this is the podcast for you. Yeah, he, he dives into scripture too, right? He's he didn't convinced. he didn't just make this up. Yeah, he's convinced. Uh, he's full of grace, uh, and I I was playing with him at the end. Um, if you believe that grace saves all, then at the end of the day, you make your you make your case, and then you just sit back and wait. <laughs> and just love people. Wow, that sounds like a great life. <laughs> what a great theology, man! I just, I'm just yeah. convinced grace saves all, so I'll live in that place. But hey, um, well, hey, shout out to all of our taco listeners. Yeah. We love you guys, and um, thank you for connecting on Facebook. Uh, Rethinking yeah. God with Tacos Facebook page has become a very safe and uh, kind environment to discuss things that are sometimes difficult in other circles and so we ask you to join the page also we're a, a listener supported podcast so uh, your donation your gift to a family story dot org makes a big difference so you can head over there and and give online uh, thank you so much for your generosity we never want to be arm twisters or beggars we want you guys to partner with what's happening here and uh, your partnership makes this all possible yeah, familystory.org is where you can sign up for our mailing list. We are doing Taco Immunities uh, Zoom calls, and so that's how you'll be best informed outside of being on the Facebook page. We also have an Instagram page, now also Rethinking God with Tacos, where um, there's sound bites. Uh, we've got a lot of Baxter on there right now, and um, so that's a cool place where there's some com community taking place. Man, love this. This is fun. Yeah, great this is great, Jason. Uh, love you, bro. Um, love you too, man. In town, and I, I'll say this again. If you're in town, if you're in the Charlotte area, uh, you want to visit us Saturday nights at River Church. River, uh, River Charlotte, 
Charlotte.com, rivercharlotte.com, and get all yeah. the info and join us for a Saturday night service. We'd love to have you. We have a great time yeah. uh, every Saturday. So, stuff. This is our incredible conversation with David Artman. Grace saves all. <laughs> but here we go, man. This is good. Yeah. David Artman, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Jason, how are you? I'm doing good, man. How, how did this happen? I We were talking just before you popped on, Derek, and I think it was through you. Did you? Yeah. So I, uh, I came across David, um, who has a podcast, but has a book. This is the book right here. There it is. See if we can see it. Grace, Grace saves, all. saves all the necessity of Christian universalism. And, um, I, so I, I ordered the book and I started, I started diving in and then I reached out to David and man, he was so gracious. He, he took a personal phone call and said, Hey, let's chat for a while. Let's get to know each other, which yeah. I love. And so <laughs> we had a really pleasant conversation and I think you guys connected it as well. Mm -hmm. But, uh, as I've been diving into, into his book, which by the way, Brad Jerzak wrote the foreword in this book. And, um, yeah, maybe this might be a good place to start. Uh, what do you think, David? Well, the, the book Grace Saves All is very, the title is very intentional. Uh, it, really, everything is in those three words, grace. And because I want to have a conversation, this, for me, this is a conversation. I want to frame this as a conversation about grace. And grace is a word that uh, Christians use frequently, and it's a, it's a good word. And, you know, if, if uh, you're in a room full of Christians, you say, who likes grace? Everybody, right? We all like grace. And, um, and, and so then comes to that question, saves. Okay, does grace save? Does it actually save? Or does it only potentially save? Well, now right here, we've gotten into one of the great theological controversies that is still um, still going today. And then the third word is very provocative, all. And then we get into, you know, some or all. So right away, I've, I've got three very provocative words there. And then the subtitle is the necessity of Christian universalism. And the argument that I make in the book is that if God is in fact all-knowing, uh, knows the um, end from the beginning, as Isaiah 46.10 says, then uh, to kind of quote, put it in David Bentley Hart language, uh, the end of creation ends up also being the revelation of the moral character of God, because whatever happens at the end, um, whatever that situation is, reverberates all the way back to the very beginning to God, who is the first cause of all that is. So if there is you know, directly or indirectly some unresolved evil in the creation, ultimately, that's not just something that happened. God can't just say, huh. No, that's something that rebounds right back to the very beginning. And it was those types of considerations that folks like David Bentley Hart uh, pressed me to think about more deeply uh, caused me to to really say, that I think that the position of universal reconciliation, um, I think it is a legitimate Christian spirituality. The way I see it right now, it's the only one that I see that fully safeguards the goodness of God with relationship to the two primary 
challenges to the goodness of God, which are the problem of evil and the problem of hell. And I think the universal restoration theology offers the only uh, possible uh, good answers to those questions with a God who finally turns all uh, sorrow into joy and who finally uh, heals any suffering that happens in the good creation and that all together are finally able to see and to celebrate and to rejoice together in, in being a part of God's good creation. You're, uh, you're preaching to the choir, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, that's why I wanted to reach out to you guys. I think that we are, that we're, we're sort of feeling and experiencing some of the same types of things. I, I want to hone in on one word, because for me, I think you're preaching to the choir. We say on this uh, podcast often, God is good as Jesus revealed. It's the goodness of God. Jesus's perfect theology is one way of saying it, but God is good. And anything that could conflict with his goodness is a place that cuts us off from trust, cuts us off from relationship, cuts us off from intimacy. And so that's been my journey uh, to to where I sit very comfortably listening to you talk going, yes, I hear it. But yeah, it was a journey around his goodness. So I, I would love for, for you to share a little bit about how you got here. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I didn't, I'll put it this way, I did not grow up in the fold. Uh, but okay. I did grow up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, where uh, evangelical fundamentalism was uh, very, very prominent. And I didn't know that it was evangelical fundamentalism. I just thought it was Christianity. Sure. And there was something that I identified with it that was wrong. I couldn't, I couldn't verbalize it or vocalize it. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, when I get to the end of um, uh, high school— and towards college, my parents go through a divorce, and I hit some I hit some turmoil in life, and I went through kind of the, I don't know, you're you're starting to you're you're a young adult, and I had I realized I didn't have anything that I really believed, and I kind of felt unprepared for facing whatever challenges in life there might be, and I had this thought, and the thought was, uh, you know, this this whole life and everything. It might make sense if there's a really good God somewhere, but I don't know where that might be. Right. And uh, through a series of events, I was uh, recommended C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. <laughs> and that was the first time that I ever encountered a, a vision of God that seemed to be good. And Lewis also sort of gave me permission to think. Um, to think about things. I didn't know you could think about things. I thought that uh, Christianity was something that somebody just sort of, it was sort of set in stone and people told you about it. But C.S. Lewis had a way of exer exercising his mind and his ration and thinking through things. And he, he had this really beautiful picture of God. And in his picture of God, the um, the only thing that could finally land somebody in hell would be for sort of sort of eternal separation would would be if they in full awareness and knowledge rejected God when everything is known and fully clear, right? And um, but that God would not lose somebody over a miscommunication, that it would have to be a a knowing, right. willful, repeated rejection. That's why and we I needed. Thought, that's why we needed the 1040 window. That was a big deal. We had to go tell them. Well, 
And I'm thinking, well, and I'm not thinking just on this side of the grave. I'm thinking God pursues people through the ages to come. Right, right. And it's not that God ever gives up on them. It's just that the part of us that's able to decide and reason could finally get so whittled down that it kind of just goes away. And we become stuck sort of in a permanent state of rebellion some way. I got you. So I thought that that could possibly happen. And that seemed a good enough answer to me. Uh, until I was in my 50s, and uh, long story short, by this time I had I had, had an opportunity to get involved with the First Christian Church in Lubbock, Texas. It's a Christian church, Disciples of Christ, a small denomination. They rejected, or we rejected, creeds as tests of fellowship. So you could join the church based on a simple profession of faith, and then the, the deal was, okay, we're all going to follow Jesus together. This is going to humble all of us. It's a good journey. Uh, we're not here to judge each other. We're here to support each other. We're not all here to be copycats of each other. So let's support each other. Let's give each other room. Let's listen to each other. And let's just go on the journey together. So, That's cool. Yeah, it was really, really. So no, no bound was ever put on how good I could believe God was. Okay. <laughs> Dang, man. <laughs> so, so I'm going along. I get, in, I get into ministry and um, a couple of things happen. One, I started really focusing on spiritual growth. And I realized that, you know, spiritual growth is something we're all interested in. We all want to be growing spiritually. Uh, you guys want to grow spiritually? Uh, I, I do. Yeah, Derek, I I'm like not, Derek, 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 I'm not hearing you. Uh, uh, yeah, quicker. 100%. I'm raising, okay, 100%. My hand. I'm raising both my hands. I'm raising yeah. both hands. the altar call there. I'll be <laughs> yeah. crying in a few minutes at the altar. Well, that um, was, you know, so when I was pastoring, you know, when you're pastoring, you're always looking for something that what can we all agree on? What can what can I say that everybody will amen? And what I discovered was if I said to a room full of people, who here is interested in spiritual growth? Well, if you don't raise your hand, that's kind of embarrassing, right? It's like it's kind of <laughs> like you're saying, you know what? I'm just here to get into heaven. I just want to what whatever I want to get. I'm here to get a D in Christianity. I don't want to get an F. I want to get a D. And I just want to make it. Yeah, I just want to pass and grade. That's all I care about. I don't want to grow spiritually. I just, you know, I want to put in the absolute minimum. Yeah. So my message was, is that, that, you know, we're not growing to earn our salvation. And I say, we're not growing to make God love us. We're growing because we've received this grace and we want to grow into it and experience it more deeply. So then I started saying things, you know, what if we just did... 100%, 100%, what if our discipleship was 100% growth and 100% grace? What if we just did it that way? That it's all grace, and it, we just say, okay, salvation is by grace, and then growth is just our joyful participation in, in what's been in, given to us in Christ. So I started using this language without really thinking about sort of theologically. I was kind of painting myself in a corner, if you can see this coming. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm seeing. Okay. <laughs> So then I realized I'm saying it's all grace and it's all growth. And I'm saying this stuff all the time. And then I'm starting to think, uh-oh, if it's all grace, does that mean I'm a Calvinist or a universalist? Or what, what can that, you know, what does that, what does that really mean? And then along about that time, we also, in the church, I used to say people, I am the minister of the church, but that doesn't mean I'm always the smartest person in the room. My job is to encourage us all to be growing spiritually and to learn from each other. And I'm in process just like you all are. 
So let's continue to talk. All, my job is just to share with you the best that I've got. And uh, right now, that doesn't mean that I'm not on a journey too. Yeah. So uh, there's this guy that was kind of starting to visit the church a little bit. And he said, you know, I've become convinced about universal reconciliation. And sort of long story short, he ended up saying to me, um, I would never, ever give up on one of my kids. And I don't think I'm a better parent than God is. And yeah. I think you ought to look into universal reconciliation. And I, so I took him up on that. I had looked into it in the mid nineties. I did a doctor of ministry paper on the topic of hell. And I looked at annihilation and internal conscious torment and restoration. So I was familiar with the, the different ideas there, but I thought I would dip my toe back in, in 2011 and just see what's out there. And so I got online and I just, I just ordered a bunch of books. I ended up with, um, her gates will never be shut. Brad Jerzak's book, yeah. Inescapable Love of God by Thomas Talbot, uh, the Evangelical Universalist, written under the pen name. Yeah, I see you're holding up the, yeah, her gates will never be shut. Um, uh, uh, the Evangelical Universalist, written under the pen name Gregory McDonald, which turns out to be Robin Perry. Uh, Jerry Boschman's uh, Hope for All, um, or Hope, no, I think it's Hope Beyond Hell. Uh, anyway, I, so I, um, I started just getting all these books that were, that were making an argument for a distinctively Christian, uh, vision of universal restoration. And one of the things, oh, I, you know, and Rob Bell's book, Love Wins came out sure. and I read that that wasn't really an argument for universal restoration. It was an argument that universal restoration can, such a strong case can be made for it. Uh, sure that it does need to be reconsidered and, you know, sort of rehabilitated for today. And he, but in the book, he said, I don't know if it's, you know, sure. I don't know what I yeah. think about it exactly, but I do know that we need to be headed more in the direction of hope. But yeah, there were a lot of arguments that uh, Rob Bell made in Love Wins that I liked. And uh, it was sort of interesting. It was just sort of one day I just woke up and I realized that, okay, things are different. <laughs> I think uh, it wasn't like a conscious decision. It was just one day I realized that I had a like, and I had a new set of spiritual glasses on. I was starting to look at things differently, and I was just really enjoying uh, thinking that you know what, this whole thing is grace. It's just yeah. all grace, and we're all caught up in it. And how could I have ever? How could I have missed this? And I, it was. It was in a way, it was a small change in my theology because I believed that God could save everybody but the scum of the earth. And so just to say that God, yeah, you know what? God's even going to save the scum of the earth. Just that little change had kind of an ex caused sort of this explosion yeah. in the rest of my theology. And I, I guess from that point on, I was super kind of supercharged by grace and I kind of had sort of like this born again, almost charismatic kind of personal experience with oh. it. So I was just, you know, I was getting all these tingles and these confirmations and, you know, <laughs> little things were happening here and there that were just, you know, confirming that this was good. Yeah. I was on a good yeah. path. Good things were happening, yeah. but it was still going to be hard to explain to the average person in my little town in Northern Arkansas that I live in. Uh, Although we're getting ready to move up to Springfield, but anyway, in, in even in Springfield, in, if you're in the central part of the country in a Bible Belt kind of world, 
and you say something in regards to universal reconciliation or you, you that you're a Christian, you think God is ultimately going to run the table and save everyone, people immediately are going to have a bunch of questions about that. And so I wanted, okay, so if, if I become identified with this or I'm in a conversation about it and I'm going to, and I'm going to respond, the first thing I want to say is for me, this is a conversation about grace. Can, can we talk about grace? And then I want to ask them, do you believe that salvation is by grace alone? If they say yes, well, then I know I'm dealing with, you know, with the Calvinist. And at least a Calvinist understands that they're doing theology. You know, we can have a good theological conversation. We can disagree with each other. If they say, and if, if they say that, and, but then I say, do you believe that grace goes to all? Sometimes they'll say they agree with that too. Well, then I've got somebody that says, they believe salvation is by grace alone, and they believe grace goes to all, then I'll say, well, do you believe then that all will be saved? And they'll say, well, no. And I say, okay, well, then which one of those other are you going to give up? I, I just want to have a conversation about grace. And then what I want to say is, you know that part in the Protestant Reformation where it was salvation by grace alone? Um, that's a pretty big deal. And I really want to affirm that. And you know the part where uh, it's the idea that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, he, that his love is universal, that his grace is, goes to all. I want to affirm that part, too. And it's yes. worth it to me to be able to fully affirm grace in both its ability to save and its ability to go to all. It's worth it for me to be able to fully affirm grace to in order, if, even if that forces me to have to rethink uh, God's, uh, my eschatology and God's ultimate redemptive, whether God can ultimately pull off the restoration of the whole creation. And so, so I like to really form this as a, as a conversation about, uh, about grace. So I guess I'll just kind of stop there, but that's kind of how this all got to where I am now. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and David, I, I love that you do want to frame it as a conversation around grace yeah. and that you, you know, bring Jesus in as the central focus of that, um, of that grace and, and the manifestation or impartation of that grace. Let me read Brad Jerzak's forward in here, because I think it's important for a lot of our listeners and uh, those that have a, you know, immediately have a red flag that goes up when they hear about Christian universalism or ultimate reconciliation, uh, is that they feel like it's some type of, you know, fad or new thing. Now, this goes back to the early church mothers and fathers that had mm -hmm. serious conversations about that. And, and Brad brings this out in the foreword when he says that this argument about ultimate redemption is not a thin or popular novelty. It has deep historic roots in the ancient faith. In my view, <clears throat> here's what Brad said in the foreword of your book. Two great errors must be avoided. Uninformed knee-jerk charges of heresy. <laughs> and Jason and I hear this all the time. You know, I mean, it's just blatantly straight up. The moment you start talking down this track, people are not even willing to listen. It's just like, oh, that's heresy. That's heresy. Why? You know, well, why is that heresy? And you answer the question in the book. And mm -hmm. then the number two thing that was to be avoided is the sloppy pop universalism that fails to proclaim Christ alone the necessity of a faith response, or the reality of judgment. In Grace Saves All, David Artman skillfully avoids both ditches. With careful ears, a thoughtful mind, and a wise voice, he's able to engage other points of view with generosity and conviction. I, I love that 
the way that Brad framed that, because what you're saying is that we need to have a serious conversation about that. And that's why the the word necessity in your subheading stuck out to me, the necessity Mm -hmm. of Christian universalism, because I'm, I'm at the point now where this has to be talked about. There's no other way around it. You have, because you painted yourself in a corner in the beginning with grace, (laughs) you're painting other people in the corner right now with the questions that you're asking. And they are great questions. And I love that it's not an in-your-face shock, you're wrong, I'm right. It's just a careful exploration uh, about how these truths have impacted you and you feel that they need to be brought into our everyday theology, which ultimately for me uh, centers around transformation is what I'm believing making me more like Jesus. Yeah. And Jason and I have a new a new statement that we've we've kind of tapped into and that is the more dogmatic I get about love, the less dogmatic I can be. And, and what we mean by that is, you know, I believe that ultimate spiritual growth, if we're going to talk about spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, it, it's centered around one word and that is love. How well are you loving? Are you more patient? Are you more kind? Are you letting these attributes of father, word and spirit infiltrate every mm-hmm. every area of your life. Uh, if so, then you need to be able to let people have their opinions, even though in your mind you're like, man, you're so wrong. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. I, in my life, was so wrong at one point. I've been exploring this for a very long time. So how can I find language and ease people into the conversation? And I think that's what your book does brilliantly. Brilliantly. I love the way this book is formatted, the chapters, the way you progress through the conversation. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to recommend that everybody run out and buy Grace Saves All, at, at least just to give yourself an opportunity to hear a ex, an explanation of Christian universalism. You know, which uh, and this is another thing that we need to talk about: the language around that, like hopeful inclusionist or ultimate reconciliationist. You're you're fixated a little more on the term Christian universalist. Yeah, I, I and felt I want, like a, I want you to, to explain that to our our listeners why that I is. I felt like uh, I felt like that lane that people were backing away from that lane that they were afraid of the word universal. And of course, if I ask the question, is sin universal? <laughs> amen. You get a hearty okay. amen. Okay. Uh, so I'm a little tired of, um, okay, I can't use the word universal. Uh, I know yeah. that the Unitarian Universalist Church uses that word, and I use it a little differently. It'd be like saying I can't use the word theology because somebody does Buddhist theology. Um, I, I'm i not just doing universalism. I'm doing Christian universalism. Okay, so that's a very distinct. There's universalism, and then there's Christian universalism. And Christian universalism is its own well-defined lane. And uh, I'm just wanting to say that the universality of grace um, uh, finally transcends and defeats the universality of sin. And I want to say that the, that God is the universally the parent, the loving parent of all people, that God universally uh, desires all people to be saved, that God universally has covered human sin in Christ, that God is universally sovereign over the ultimate outcome of creation, 
and that God will universally finally one day be all in all. And so it's about the universal embrace of creation in God's love and grace and mercy. And uh, so I want to, I want to, in, in some circles, the word Christian is a bad word. Sure. Right. Christian right. has, Christian has been, been, has been loaded with all kinds of negativity culturally these days. And, and then universalism, it's funny, in, in, in areas where people aren't Christian, Christian is a difficult word. In areas where people are Christian, universal is a bad word. <laughs> so I guess in a way, I'm, I'm kind of trying to throw those both together intentionally and say, yes, call me a Christian universalist and let's, let's talk about it. And let's talk about the history of it. You know, at the end of the day, if you say, well, I can agree with you, but I can't call myself that. I'll have to call myself an ultimate redemptionist or a universal reconciliationist. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Fine. Rock and roll. Yeah. Yep. I'll yeah. still leave my T-shirt okay, you know, on with Christian universalists. You can label yourself however you want to. Let's just have the discussion. <laughs> yeah. That, well, that's the thing. That well, let's have the discussion is what I think people are needing to realize. And that's really what we do on this podcast is we have the discussions. We may not jive on every exact word or term, but we, what we do look at is Jesus at the, at the center of everything and, and Jesus yeah. being what God has to say about himself. And I, I got to tell you, my own personal journey was a question that was posed just to my heart. I just sensed this question. And the question was this, how can what happened in Adam be universal, but what happened in Christ be limited? And, uh, and once I started unraveling that question, it brought me to a way higher Christology, mm -hmm. a, a way higher view of, uh, you know, the redemption of all mankind. And then, you know, the pieces, the pieces and the voices started falling into place. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love, uh, I love you, David, so much, uh, even though we've just recently known each other, but I'm loving your book is that you've had, you've had a completely different path towards this viewpoint in terms of mm -hmm. your, your Christianity, your spiritual upbringing, your heritage of, you know, denomination and all those sorts of things. And I just find that intriguing that all these different rivers seem to be flowing towards the same ocean. And yeah. that ocean what's funny, is way what's, more inclusive and big than anyone could have ever imagined. What, what's funny, what's funny about this is I'm, you know, I, I sort of early on steered clear of evangelical fundamentalism. It was just, it scared, was scary. I grew up in the seventies <laughs> and during the seventies, there was a lot of cult action and, yeah. uh, Helter Skelter, um, the, the Moonies, you know, Charles Manson, just, there's a lot of cult like activities. And when I would go to movement, <laughs> well, when I would go to visit churches, it seemed, it all seemed very cult like it was very, there was a lot of intimidation, a lot of emotional intimidation. You could not ask questions. If you, you know, you, you had to stay in line. I would ask people in these, you know, in my little, in Irving, Texas, I'd say, well, ask them, well, what is, you know, what do you think about this? And they would have to confer with each other because they would have to find out what they thought about it, what we think. Well, we think, I used to call it, oh, we think. Like, can you guys not have your own opinions? Is it, you have to get in there and everybody has to be, think exactly the same, you know, has to think exactly yeah. the same thing. And it was, uh, you know, the, the way the, the sermons would start out, the minister would start out nice, 
but then the longer he would go, the more agitated he would get. And finally, toward the end, you know, it was kind of, there was some anger. Sometimes there was some shouting, you know, and that kind of thing that was going on. And there was threats of eternal torment. And then it, and then there was this long period where people would have to bow their every, every eye closed, every head bowed, then you raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus. And you went through all of that. And then after it was all over, everybody left and we just kind of, you know, you just kind of went on your way. And I just thought it was a very strange cult-like kind of environment. And so I kind of thought all of Christianity was like that because I just didn't have very much experience with it. And it's only because I later, you know, my life kind of became unmanageable in a certain way for me that I began to think, I, I do need some spirituality. Is there anything that's out there that's not kind of this? And by this time, I was old enough to kind of understand that. Is there anything out there that's not this kind of hardcore uh, fundamentalism? So pretty quickly, I got into what you would you know, what you would call the more progressive side of the Christian experience. And I was in that world. Um, but what was what was what what's interesting is what's happened to me is I've come to a more Christian universalist perspective. Some of my more progressive Christian friends see me as conservative because I've got a very high Christology. I'm claiming that at the end of the day, we're all going to be gratefully uh, thanking Jesus and worshiping the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and it's all we're all going to be. Uh, enjoying that, participating in that fellowship, and some of my pro progressive friends say, uh, "Really, you're you're going to make uh, in this day and age, you're going to make Jesus absolutely central for everybody. You're going to say that that's the one path that everybody has to go through. I mean, uh, aren't we sort of past the point where we're where we're saying that our religion is better than other people's religions? I mean, how's that going to help the world? Why, why shouldn't we just all say that we each have our religious paths and we should respect each other's religious paths? You're you're kind of doing this uh, Christian dominance over all other religious expressions. You're, you're, it sounds like you're, you kind of sound evangelical to me. So to my, really, to my more progressive Christian friends, I think I sound conservative. But then to my you know, conservative Christian friends, they think I'm liberal. I think that what I'm trying to do is just gather together the best that I see out of the history of the whole tradition. And just, you know, what well, I think what enlivens me the most spiritually and what is just kind of, I, like I said, I didn't try for any of this to happen. It just sort of organically developed. And then I just wrote the book in such a way that if somebody wanted to know more about it, that I could sort of bring them along on the journey and at least show them how I came to these conclusions and how I've sort of worked through all the questions that were involved with it. And to the extent that they, that that helps them, then you know, fine. If it doesn't work for them, that's okay too. I am going to bring my strongest argument to the table, but I hope to do it in a way that's not belittling or mean, mean spirited, but I am going to lay it out there in the clearest and strongest form I can. Your journey is very different, um, uniquely yours, uh, to how you've gotten here. But, but there was one thing you said at the very beginning that made me go, uh, I think it starts there. Uh, you were at a place where you were allowed to have better thoughts about God than the last best thoughts you had about him. Yeah. And no one was tearing you down for it. Um, mm -hmm. I know that I've experienced at times, and Derek and I've talked about this often, how we'll have a thought about the goodness of God and present it and realize that it was too good for the folks we were presenting it to. <laughs> that, it, that it was almost, mm -hmm. uh, it was offensive to the their understanding. 
but I, I, I do think that that is the, the that's the acorn uh, that, that becomes the oak. I use the term a relational theologian. Mm-hmm. I'm not much of an academic. I'm a practical theologian. Derek touched on it. Um, if if we don't see uh, what we're coming awake to transforming us, if it isn't bringing life into our marriages and into our parenting, and if it isn't um, uh, enlarging my heart for my neighbors, uh, if it isn't impacting how I walk throughout my day, um, then I, I'm I'm a little less interested in engaging the terminology, the principles. We can apply all that yeah. to to whatever end. It's for me a matter of um, what Jesus, you know, said that you can. It's a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. If it isn't, if it isn't, if it's without love. Yeah. Um, well, well, I would but, say that uh, I would say that Jesus was a relational theologian. <laughs> I feel that. Come too. on. Well, Jason, this, there you go. You, yeah, it's settled, bro. Well, I think that Jesus was a relational theologian in that, okay, so he comes and he announces the good news that the kingdom of God is present and among yeah. us. So you would think that he would teach everybody to call God king. Yeah. But instead what he does, he, you know, he teaches, he's teaching, he's teaching his disciples in front of these, you know, these multitudes, all these different kinds of folks. And he's talking about our father. That's and right. he speaks of God in the most intimate terms. And he, he has questions like, well, even if, even if people who are not good know how to give, you know, even if parents who are not good know how to give good gifts to their children, well, how much more does your Heavenly Father? You know, so that's all relational, right? It's all, yeah, it's all relational. Uh, Derek, um, I love doing this with you. Love uh, what God is doing uh, in and through our lives, the connection, the reconnection over these last years, uh, what uh, the, the favor in life on on Rethinking God with Tacos, whether it's the Facebook group uh, or the Zoom calls and the, the ones we have in the future, just uh, life-giving and a, a fulfillment of the vision that I had nine years ago when we stepped away from pastoring full-time to start a family story ministries a family story ministries was meant to create content catalytic for an encounter with the love of god i mean it was that simple and and uh and it was very empowering for me to then lean into writing lean into obviously uh, speaking and teaching uh and and led to the start of this podcast almost five years ago a family story is a nonprofit, and it's um it's been uh, the home for for me for nine years as we've leaned in and so anyway I, I just wanted to share a little bit about the the beginning of a family story and and I remember you saying uh, coming out of COVID that hey guys we started a podcast and you you and Sarah were, were one of our earliest guests yeah 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 and uh, and it definitely is content that is catalytic for an encounter with the love of God uh, we've yeah. experienced that by joining forces together. Yep. Uh, but I want I want all of our listeners to know that this is a listener-funded podcast, and uh, Rethinking God with Tacos has kind of taken on a life of its own in the umbrella of a family story, but a family story is your livelihood, Jason. Um, <laughs> I, I get a salary from the church that I pastor, and uh, I, I donate my time and volunteer my time to do this, but I want everybody to know that uh, you can give to make Rethinking God with Tacos available to as many people as we can possibly make it available to. If, it, if this podcast has in any way 
uh, blessed you helped shape your rethinking journey and been a safe place to experience community on the Facebook page, then I, I invite you to, uh, to give, not out of compulsion or arm twisting, no. but out of, uh, out of joy and yeah. generosity. Uh, give into a family story, and you can do it at afamilystory.org. There's a giving function on there, and, and we invite you into partnership with us. It's a way that we can partner together to establish the kingdom of God through this podcast. Uh, and I love doing it with you, Jason. I really do. Yeah, yeah same here, man. Thank you. So grateful uh, for those who have given and who, who bless us and, and have prayed for us and partnered with us over the years. So love it. Love doing this with you. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you all soon. There's folks that are listening that get highly uncomfortable with whatever, you know, especially that term universalist, you know, and I love, I love that the conversation begins and ends with grace. I think Derek could speak to this too, but we often talk about uh, the linchpin in our lives was an awakening to grace. Um, whether it was for me, it was Brennan Manning 20 years ago, yeah. writing on grace. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes what will happen here is we'll get in this discussion and uh, somebody will say, yeah, but God's ways are higher than yes, our ways. Right. And yeah, what yeah. I want to say is, well, you know, it was Jesus who actually was the one who taught us to think relationally about yeah. who God is. And so if I'm trying to think about God's ways being higher, I have to do that relationally. So that means that God is like the best parent you could possibly, possibly imagine that so whatever whatever experience we've had with parental love, take the best experience you've had with parental love, that God is better than that. That's it. God is the ultimate loving, uh, God is the ultimate loving parent. And so then that whatever flows from God flows out of that. So if it's correction, it's correction that's flowing from a loving, the, a perfectly loving parent who only has your best interest in. Um, in mind, I, I think somebody yeah. told, you know, like it would be like a, a, a little child, you know, comes to, to, you know, comes up to their parent and they're holding a rattlesnake. They don't know it. And the right. parent slaps that out of their, you know, slaps that out of their hand. They don't understand. They, they don't understand what they're dealing with. Right. And they're not mad at the parents, not mad at them. They're yeah. trying to get that rattlesnake out of the way or, yeah. you know, God's not mad at me, but he is. He is, uh, in the words of George MacDonald, he is uh, determined that the that the devil must come out every hair and feather. So God isn't mad at me, but God is very determined that I become the child that he created me to become. And he's not going to be satisfied until I am that. And so that then I can, and the purpose of that is not just so that I can be perfect, but that so that I can share in that perfect love that exists between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And then, then, then that whole thing just continues to expand and expand to finally it embraces all creation. That, to <laughs> me, is good news. And yeah. it is, but it, and it, and the Christian community used to have that good news in its kit. That used to be an accepted way of expressing uh, the Christian faith. And we yeah. lost that. Western Christendom lost that ability uh, to have that, and I think what we're, what's happening now is we're in the process of rediscovering that ability. And I don't know what you call it. If we're going through the uh, you know deconstruction or the great reconstruction or whatever it is yeah. that you want to call it. Sure. Um, but I can see a progression. Uh, like twenty years ago, 
uh, for instance, when I did my doctor of ministry paper on, um, I was doing it on hell, and I consulted Zondervan's uh, Four Views on Hell book back in 1996. Back then, there was no mention of universal reconciliation in that book. Fast right. forward to 2016, and now that book is reissued. Preston Sprinkle is the editor of it. And there's a chapter in there on universal reconciliation or the universalist approach written by Robin Perry. And Preston Sprinkle says, I don't know that I'm convinced by the argument, but I am convinced that it is an orthodox expression of the Christian faith that needs to be considered and that, yeah. you know, should that people should know about. And that's in a book published by Zondervan. OK, so <laughs> so that's happened in 20 years. And yeah. and now, you know, I don't know. I'm not really that scared about anybody. Okay, so tag me as a Christian universalist. Okay, go look up Christian universalism on the internet. You'll find out it's a self-consciously Christian understanding of the Christian faith that dates back to the early church. And you'll soon enough be reading, you'll be finding out about Gregory of Nyssa and um, uh, different early church fathers and the, a, a very hopeful kind of theology that existed in the early centuries of the church. So, okay, you know, I'm just not, I, I am just, I have zero worry about Christian being called a Christian universalist. And I have zero worry about being called a heretic because I just understand that what's happened, what happened in Western Christendom was that um, the gospel or the understanding of the gospel became argued and divided over. And that um, at this point, the, the word heretic has been thrown around so much. Uh, yeah. It seems... I don't know. When somebody calls me a heretic, I think that it uh, reflects more poorly on them. Uh, <laughs> it's just not a helpful. I don't think it's. I don't think it's that helpful at this point in time. And if, and if that's what they want to call me, okay. Um, but I also think that when people, if somebody gets to the point where they're getting that charged up about it, uh, that actually might be the next person that's getting ready to to change their view about it. Yeah. Also, because sometimes it's that very anger about it that means that somebody's really processing it, and then sometimes they're the ones that turn around and they're so I don't need to get angry at these folks because they might be getting ready to be on my team. And you I, know, yeah, right? It's that quote from Abraham Lincoln where he said, "You know, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends?" Yeah, and I think I think Jesus said it actually better. Um, love your enemies <laughs> yeah. is still a thing. So um, I want to come back to something that you said earlier, because I think I don't want to miss this. I don't want our listeners to miss this. It's so important. You talked about Jesus coming along and he's preaching the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And right. yet he's not relating to God as a king. And in John chapter six, I just had this conversation with someone just today. It said in 615, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And the, the quote this guy gave over this, he's like, why do we want a king so badly? And what struck me was, first of all, I think in our delusional state, we think we want a king, but Jesus reminds us it's simply a desire for a father. And, and that, that's, that's the twist. It was it, this 
what we and we the we think and the we say mm-hmm. kind of thing that comes into that. I remember a conversation with a friend that they had to go back and ask their dad. They're like, "Hey, dad, what um what do we believe about hell?" You know, and it's like, "Well, <laughs> no, what do you what do you think? What 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 do you have formulated these opinions and thoughts in your own mind?" And this is what I love about your book is that you're bringing people into this place, starting with grace. Mm-hmm. Starting with high, high Christology, Jesus yes. is center above all else. And then you bring them into all the different kind of conversations and arguments uh, around this that, I mean, honestly, to me, you you do the best job I've ever seen of a book that I could just hand to someone and say, hey, read this and then talk to me about it. Yeah, that was the goal. Huge, huge red flag. And so... Uh, let me read a couple a couple statements here, and I want to I want you to have I want to hear your thoughts on them. Okay. He said, "What makes grace truly amazing is God never giving up and never failing. God being able to save even those for whom there is apparently no hope. Unfortunately, most people don't know it's possible to be a Christian and to believe God's grace way of God's grace is a way of ultimately saving everyone." They don't know where to find biblical evidence for this understanding of grace. They don't know the way of understanding grace. This way of understanding grace was common in early Christianity. They wrongly assume they can only be Christian if they believe God will not or might not save everyone. Through this book, I hope to help correct those false impressions and assumptions. And you do. You do a great job of it. Tell us a little bit about the three categories that you bring up about the topic of grace. One, you, The first one, you give the term transactional. Mm-hmm. The second, you give the term exclusive, and for the third, you give the term inclusive, transactional, exclusive, and inclusive. Can you talk about those three views of grace? Yeah, I wanted to. I, what I really wanted to talk talk about a grace that is not transactional, it's not exclusive. So it's a non it's a non exclusive, non transactional grace, which means it's a grace that includes everybody. Okay, so. The the idea of a grace that's uh, transactional is kind of what what most of us grew up around, unless we were in Calvinism. Or, but just the idea that grace means that God uh, in Christ has come to give you a chance. And if you respond correctly, then you get salvation. And if you don't respond correctly, then you lose salvation and you go you are sent to hell forever, annihilation or eternal conscious torment. But so in other words, it's, it feels kind of transactional. You, God, does, God does God's part, and then God sees what part you do. And if you don't do the right part, then you're lost forever. And so it, it, all, seems very, it, it all seems very transactional and induces a great deal of uh, anxiety in the people who are in those systems because they never know if they've brought enough to the table that on Judgment Day, they will be, it'll, be, it'll pass. So they sort of live in anxiety their whole life about whether or not they're going to have made a sufficient faith response right. that it will measure up on on judgment day. And then all of a sudden, and you get the then you get the attendant problems that come along with that. Well, okay, is uh, when 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 is the game on? When am I responsible for all this? So then you get some kind of age of accountability, and then you terrorize these teenagers and and say, okay, now that you're old enough. Uh, to understand some things, now you're now you're responsible for being holy before the Lord, and then that that terrorizes <laughs> that terrorizes all those kids, and then people start worrying about losing their salvation, and then 
the 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 defense for hell in that idea is that okay, it's not God's fault. God gives everybody a chance, and if they go to hell, they wind up in hell. It's not God's fault because God gave them a chance. But you have to move the lens back, and you have to understand. Okay, God made the whole thing, and so if somebody ends up going to hell in that scenario, it's not going to be a surprise to God. God's not going to say, "Huh, I didn't I didn't know Joe was going to end up in hell." Well, it looks like he fell off into hell. Okay, no, God's not surprised. You know, God's not surprised by that. That's not an accident of creation. That's that's a feature. That was when God pulled the trigger on creation, Joe was going to go to hell. It was God knew the end from the beginning. God set up the terms of the game. God knew that Joe was going to fail the terms and God and that. And so anyway, I think it ends up making a cruel picture of God. But the transactional approach has a lot of popularity because a lot of people uh, especially in America, just love freedom, and we love freedom so much. We want we want the freedom even to go to our own demise. You know, if if that's what it if that's what it comes to. But I just think that so there's a sort of a transactional way of thinking about grace and thinking about Christianity. Hey, and, David, uh, real it, quick, what real quick, what about the pushback that comes from people and they say, well, 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 uh, God only created hell you know, for Satan and his minions. It, it was never intended for man, and yet, you know, somehow man is able to choose something that was never intended for man. I mean, do you get that pushback? I know I do. Well, I would just say that it, it's just, okay, what did God intend from the beginning? So it, it's not going to be, you know, I think the problem is that in the Bible we run into some kind of anthropomorphic stories about God where it seems like God is surprised or doesn't know what's going to happen next. But I think that um, I just made theologically. I just understand that uh, God is um, God knows the end from the beginning. That God is not um, is not wondering how creation will turn out, and so everything that's involved in creation is involved from the beginning, from the moment that that decision is actuated. So, if God, um, you know, God is not going to be surprised by somebody being in hell. So. I mean, what is the emotional state of somebody? Like, imagine somebody um, who is, let's say, a man has gone overboard, and so somebody's thrown out a life ring to him, and they're just trying to trying to rescue them. They keep throwing it to him, but it, it you know, and they get it, it, they get agitated, they get really concerned because they can't bring him in. Well, that kind of makes sense. But now imagine that the whole world has been created by this person, and they knew that this moment would come. And they knew that this person would go overboard because they knew everything that was they knew that that would eventually happen. And they knew that they could throw the life ring to them. But they also knew that it wasn't going to work, that they would that they would expire. I guess the more I just thought about what are God's what was God's creative purpose from the beginning? And then so whatever is happening, however, it's working out is something that God knows about and is responsible for in the sense that God set up the terms of the whole thing. Um, and if you make it a transaction, then God would know that there are people that were going to fail that transaction in setting up the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing just seems cruel yeah. um, to me, but it's also a game that you can possibly win. And if you win that game, you kind of, I think in my mind, you can kind of pat yourself on the back because you did it. You you were able to do that thing that grace did not guarantee. And so why are you in heaven and somebody else is in hell? It's because you did something. And so you can credit yourself 
to that. You won, you won the spiritual game. You did enough. You passed. Okay. And the other people didn't. Um, yeah, so which is, I don't know, that which was the whole, yeah, yeah, that, that whole, and that, that way of doing it, um, kind of works on people in the beginning, but it really wears them down on as they, the further they go in that. I talked to one lady and she said, I was on this roller coaster. I felt like I was going to heaven. I was in it when I was doing my devotionals and I was, you know, on fire. And then I would kind of cool off or I get distracted and I forget to do my devotionals. Then I start cooling down. Then I get worried that I was had lost my salvation. So then I start doing my quiet times and get back in church and get doing all that. And then I would get back and I would, she said, I went on this roller coaster yeah. And I was on that roller coaster for years. And finally, it just completely, it just completely wore me out. I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. But that's the yeah. whole, to me, that's the whole transactional world. Now, then I think what people do is they don't want to get into that tractional world, that transactional world. And then so Calvinism provides, uh, you know, some refuge there. And they say, hallelujah, it's not transactional. It's all grace, you know, and they can say that because I have, this desire in me to follow God, I, you know, I am one of the elect and God does love me and I am God's child and God's not going to lose me. And, and there's, I think there's some initial joy in all of that, but then there's the part of the uh, perseverance of the saints in the Calvinist system in that you're not really sure that you're one of the elect. You might just be deceiving yourself. You're not really sure you're one of the elect until you die persevering in the faith. So there's no real, there's n there's no real security there either. And so what you have is this this giant mass of anxiety produced both by the what I think of as the Arminian free will side of it and the um the Augustinian Calvinist exclusive uh, approach. So I just want to identify that and then say what I want to talk about was an inclusive Christian universalist approach where grace is something that actually can save you and grace is something that actually goes to us all and that so that that grace means that we can rest securely knowing that God does love us that God has us and that we can come to God and and be in a loving relationship with God just in the same way that a child who could completely trust an absolutely loving and you know very trustworthy and powerful parent and just not be afraid from a relational perspective, and this is how I got here. If he isn't always good, and I'm coming back to that place, then you can't trust yeah. him. And where you can't trust him, you can't access relationship. And and so I, Calvinism was highly problematic because if he's a good father, we're back to relational understanding in the context, then only some kids are in. So that was easy to throw out. Arminianism was, um, and these are terms I learned at Bible college, but... Right. Um, only only showed up because I'm a relational guy. I, I'm just now getting my head around them again. Going, all right, I can yeah. use these terms. Yeah, but uh, again, it was still that transactional interaction that I didn't see in the life of Jesus. It is not in the context of my marriage. And the con I don't I don't interact that way with my kids. My love is given to them regardless of how they behave. Right, and and so again, I could easily dismiss it. What I profoundly uh, and what I saw in, in all that theology and what I'm grateful to guys like Baxter, um, guys like Brad and, and Paul Young and some of these guys that have come along and talked about the to me that the dividing line is that you have separation on your God lens or you have union on your God lens. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus came to show us not just the Father, but also what it looks to be fully human, to be a son, to be a child, to live in the context of not a transactional relationship with God. I often phrase it this way. I'll ask folks, was Jesus the most obedient person on the planet, or did he only do what was in his heart to do? And the answer is yes. And it all depends on how you perceive it. He was absolutely the most obedient person on the planet. But if you think in a transactional lens in the context of separation, which to me, Calvinism and, and Arminianism, all those all those lens, that's that seems to be the, the, the foundation place for me, is that mm -hmm. they think in the context of a father who looks away at the cross. They think in the context of separation. And so th then you're thinking about Jesus and what he does as though what he does has to be asked every every third step he has to say father we're we going left or are we going right is it your will to heal this person or is it instead of living out of a place of union where everything that is in his heart to do he's doing from a place of love love says this is what what it looks like to to, to walk this step love mm -hmm. defines how i'm going to walk that step love the, love is the, the the founding determination of my union in i am one with love and he is one with me yeah. so for me the the conversation we're having ultimately because i can hear a lot of people listening and going okay do i need to read this book or i need to read that book and i'm like what it really comes down to if you're a mom uh and you're sitting with your kiddos uh, the universal nature of, of reconciliation, the universal nature, the, uh, the universal conversation we're happening is taking place while you're holding your kid. It's really what's happening when you and your wife connect. It's, it's when I told my kids, um, you want to know the language. And I, and I love that you said uh, uh, you were getting chills and tingles. Yeah. tingles and yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. This is this is a relational God. It's 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 right. in every aspect of us. And and so when I told my kids, you want to know what the language of God is when you feel love for your sibling, that is the language. Of, it can be trusted more than. And so I would maybe maybe you've not been asked this question this way, but because uh, I think of it in this context, for me the big the big dividing line, the big aha moment in my life was when I realized the Father didn't look away. That God in Christ was reconciling the world to Himself. To me, that is a universal statement of what was taking place. Second Corinthians: God in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting our our delusions. Our theology is a separation against. Forgive us. them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them exactly. A universal statement. Um, for me, do you do you see? Uh, have you thought and, and spent any time on that and that subject? The difference because practically again what does it look like i want to wake up in the morning and go um i can ask my father what to do today but i really would like to live out of union and out yeah. of uh, out of responding to what love is in the moment does that make sense well i i think that what we're getting at is uh, well i think i i hope everybody can can move into the union and inclusion uh way of thinking about things. I just think that's such a healthy step. And um, so I'm all for that. And if somebody wants to be a hopeful uh, right. universalist or a hopeful inclusivist, okay. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's, a really, that's a really positive step. That's fun. Now, I think we're getting healthier. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, permit me to challenge things right. a little bit. And let me say that I think that every single person is absolutely secure and safe in God's love from the beginning of creation, yeah, and that I there's know. nothing that can ultimately defeat God's loving and redemptive purposes for every person in all of creation. And so the chance that somebody would fail 
to experience ultimate union with God in God's good creation is zero. We're saying the same thing. Okay, now. <laughs> and, and let me okay. just add, Paul, the Apostle Paul agrees with you in Romans <laughs> chapter 8. So, okay, um, so now, I think that's pretty good company if you take those scriptures uh, seriously. Okay, so now, so imagine this scenario. Uh, we're all there. We've all, you know, we're 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 all gradually uh, coming into the and the all in all into full full union in God's eschatological uh, consummation, and now we're all in it. And imagine the last person comes, you know, across the line, and we're all cheering, and God says, "Phew, I'm really glad that happened. I wasn't sure he was going to make it." <laughs> I would have to say, what, what do you mean you didn't you didn't know if he was going to make it? Because you know his end from the beginning, and you being love and light in whom there is no darkness at all would not it would not be in you um, for him not to finally finally make it. I, I, so that's how it. It's not just that all will be saved. It is that there is not even the chance that all will not be saved. God's not yeah. trying to get this thing done. Yeah. It's not it is it out. This isn't like a last minute. This isn't like a football game where we're seeing if God can win it at the very end, and God's struggling to see if this can happen. No, this is all things are possible for God. This is... Um, a, this is what sovereignty, sovereign love then means for me, that God has has me and everyone else in an embrace that cannot fail, and that at yeah. the ground of my being there is a grain that is headed home. And yeah. if I should go crazy, if I should lose my mind, that God will not abandon me, and okay. he will be with me through my delusions until the ground of my being becomes clear to me again, and I'm able to reorient and go the direction I have been created to go. If someone were to say, I, say Jason's a universalist, I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. But most folk, folks think in the context of separation. I'm convinced that all are being reconciled, but that all will choose, that, that, there, is, and, and that there is an invitation to come into the full realization of, of the clarity of the love of God that... that, that um, well, the choice, okay, the choice part is um, I am not, um, I'm not a blank slate. I'm a child. And yeah. so I'm a child. I, I am designed for relationship. And yeah. so the only reason that I would not want that relationship is that I'm in some kind of delusion, uh, some type of lie. Once yeah. those delusions and lies are, are cleared away, there's only one direction that I will head and that's home. And and, and the problem, the, okay, so the problem is, yeah. the, the, I don't know, home, now this is more is of a choice. Yeah, well, we're built for that. And so mm -hmm. th that's the problem. There's something called uh, libertarian free will, which is the idea that we're only free if uh, we can uh, choose to go the other direction. Sure. But the problem is that once you get to the eschatological horizon, where you see things with perfect clarity, yeah. uh, going towards God, will seem to you and you will recognize it as the greatest good and going yeah. away from God will be seen to you and recognized by you as the greatest absolute horror. So yeah. 
while God puts up no fence so that it's just that you, once you're completely clear headed and in your right mind, you're not a slave to sin or delusion anymore. You are going to then finally gratefully and joyfully live out your identity as the child that you were created to be. So what that means is I am, I am trapped in a creation in which I am the child of a perfectly loving heavenly parent who desires all the best for me and for everybody else and will not be satisfied until that has all come true for us all. And if, if that seems bad news to you, <laughs> then right. I think there's a, there's a, there's a problem there to me. That's, that's a, that's a beautiful, uh, it's to me, if, if I'm told, okay, to me, faith isn't just, Faith isn't just believing that there's a God. Faith, to me now, is actually resting securely in the goodness and the grace and the love of God. If I don't have the faith to do that, then I'm walking around and I'm trembling and I'm shaking and all of this and I'm fearful and I'm afraid and I can't into I can't enter into authentic relationship. But if I'm absolutely secure about it, well, then I, you know, I can really start living that relational spirituality and everything will just start to flower and open up the way it's supposed to. Beautiful. I agree. I love it. I, uh, I will, I, one of the liberties, even in this conversation, if you identify as a, uh, as a Christian universalist or an ultimate reconciliationist, then there are no teams at the end of the day. <laughs> at the end of the day, there, there's such a liberty in that. Yeah. You know, and I think, I, you know, a lot of the people that I talk to about this are coming out of some evangelical background and they're going through some level or they have gone through some level of deconstruction. And uh, there's something about being identified as a Christian universalist that just sets out some type of trauma informed warning system that's sure. still operating right. back right. there. OK, so yeah. I don't I don't I'm not coming out of that background. I was. I was never traumatized that way. Right. And right. I have lived my whole Christian experience outside of the evangelical world, looking over at it, thinking, why? Right. <laughs> why are right. these people so wrapped up in all of this in this way? And uh, so what I'm excited about now is that a lot of the things, the early questions that I had, which made me steer clear of evangelical fundamentalism, what I'm glad about is a lot of people in that world are starting to uh, wake up, ask the questions, and are starting to feel the freedom to start. I, I can't, okay, I can't talk to somebody that grew up in evangelicalism like you can. So I'm still, my whole experience is kind of across the fence from from you guys. Sure. And in a way, the book that I wrote is my attempt to write it all out and throw it across the fence. <laughs> See if somebody, if it helps yeah. somebody yeah. that's yeah. trying no, to that's no rethink things in the in the evangelical world. I'm not trying yeah. to make them into me, but right. I am trying to give them permission to think about these things and to um, you know, identify um, however they they want to. I just like the uh, in a way. I think I enjoy being a little provocative, and so I like. <laughs> Yeah, I like you know what? Call me a Christian universalist, and then let's let's talk about it. Yeah, and, and David, I love I, lo I love I love the the <laughs> to me the thought of like 
your book being delivered via drone over the fence and, and just dropping it in different places. Well, that's what the podcast is. That's what the podcast is. Yeah, that's what the book exactly. is. And I, I feel like, uh, I feel like that is exactly what you have done with this book because it's not in any way, um, in your face, intimidating. And it, it bypasses that trigger that you're talking about. And it is real. The, the trigger you're talking about is so real. I had a conversation with a guy on Twitter today that we led through a progression of things. And then finally, he just, just asked me like, before I got in the podcast, he goes, are you a universalist? And I know, <laughs> I know what, I know where he's coming from. I know exactly where he's coming from. And I think your book is the exact book to point people to that just can't escape that as being some type of like it's it's off limits we can't even talk about it it's you know like what's what's his name in in harry potter don't say that name or yeah, Voldemort. whatever i don't know yeah oh, you can yeah. say it all you can say it all you want to that's <laughs> so that's a uh, we uh, we've had you over an hour here and and, and <laughs> look we have only gotten into the uh forward and introduction hey don't worry book. about don't worry about just having me for an hour i can keep on going brother <laughs> Oh, hey, well, we'll definitely have to have you back. But I want to I want to read this statement from okay. your book. OK. And you said that you said this after you went through the, the, the three ways about grace, you know, um, inclusive, transactional and exclusive and arriving at inclusive. You said the core conviction I reached was that the inclusive approach is not just one approach to Christian theology. It is the only approach to Christian theology, which can successfully defend the goodness of God, and therein lies its necessity. And that comes back to that right. word necessity, which I'm, I'm right. so glad you put that in the in the subheading of your book. I'm going to show your book to everybody here again. There it is. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm well, recommending the, the, everybody go out. You start the off with the Bible, too. The first chapter, yeah. you start off with the Bible, which I think is important for people to know yeah. who are just right. And the following chapters— Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, uh, the necessity part—that's another—that's me being provocative again. Um, David, you are the least provocative person I've ever met in my life, and yet you okay. are tackling. And, well, well, let me let me give the caveat: you're tackling the most controversial topic in probably all of Christianity. Yeah, are you so, going to hit theodicy next? <laughs> well, the theodicy question is involved in all of this because it is. It is. You know, Christian universalism isn't a theodicy directly, but I think it gives us the best shot of possibly. Uh, uh, pointing towards a possible horizon in which even the worst disasters in human history at the far eschatological horizon can be seen in some type of, of context that we can't understand them now. So I can at least suspend my judgment on those things, even though they do seem horribly uh, horrific to me, and I can't imagine myself allowing them in some way or even knowing about them if I was God. But that's where the mystery part comes in for me. Well, we we go back to John ten ten. Jesus said, "The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly." If it's steal, kill, or destroy, the Father has no no act in it. He is not the one that okay. is enacting that. And that's that's probably okay. where I land in terms of Jesus's perfect theology. And maybe there is some type of argument uh, that God does steal, kill, and destroy. And therefore, you know, either Jesus was wrong or my eyes aren't open to the way his are. Well, OK, well, so I, I think here's we're the, going down a whole nother track here. But I mean, yeah, for well, me, I mean, that's this is the problem. If if we say, OK, uh, 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 God didn't do it, uh, the devil did. it. So, OK, well, then we all. Uh, OK, first of question, all, define the, the devil. devil. Come? Yeah. OK. Yeah. OK. Some Sorry. some malevolent some malevolent force. 
the, the idea you cannot finally escape that God is the first cause of all that is. Even if you uh, try to cast it off on some other super spiritual being that God created and, and got going a wrong direction or something else, it finally all reverts back to God one way or the other. God is the first cause of all that is. So then all secondary causes then revert back to God, who is the primary cause of everything. So anything that ultimately is unredeemable in creation ends up being unredeemable in God, which seems to me to be an impossibility. So that drives me to this conclusion. I think David Bentley Hart is the one who does the best job articulating this. But finally, um, there cannot be any, any darkness, any permanent darkness in the creation of a God who is light in whom there is no darkness at all. So that to me is the necessity of it. You can do lots of Christian theologies where God is all-knowing and all-powerful, but then if I add the extra thing, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, then I think everybody, everybody has to get it from the table at that point, except for the Christian universalist, who I think can still sit there. So that's, yeah. that's the necessity. That's the strength of this argument, and I don't want to back down from that. Um, and the reason I'm doing this is I want to be absolutely unapologetic about this, and I want to challenge the Western Christian tradition as strongly as I possibly can. Um, and so I'm going to bring my strongest argument to the table, and then I'll sit back and smile, and we can talk about it. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. You know, I still love but at you. least, yeah, <laughs> but at least we've had a good, a good conversation about uh, about who you know about who God is and I, I will say that the beginning of the book you know I do start out and I, I, I make a little statement some statements about grace and why I think that's important but fairly quickly I move into a biblical uh, five-point um, picture of, of a God who is a loving parent to all who sincerely wants to save all who in Christ has covered the sin of all who is sovereign over all and who will be all in all and all those points I think I can show a biblical foundation for and people are surprised that I can do this it's not that people can't argue against it biblically. They just aren't aware that you can argue for it positively. So I'm just saying I've got a leg to stand on. I'm not saying you don't have a leg to stand on, too. I'm just saying I have one, too. Let me, let me, let me make my argument, and then let me follow that out and say that I think my argument is biblical. Ultimately, I think it is rationally coherent, and ultimately, I think it's the only one that defends the goodness of God. So and, that's kind of how I move through choose? the book. Did you choose it. five points intentionally? Is this is yes. this five point David Artmani Artmanianism? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a. I have a friend who calls himself a. He he gives me a hard time. He calls himself a four point Artmanist because yeah, yeah. he doesn't like. He says he thinks I overdo the sovereignty part of it. He says he you know he thinks he's more for the more like a little bit of an open theism where God is maybe doesn't know for sure how the creation is gonna is gonna end up. He thinks it's possible that there will be a universal restoration, but. But, you know, maybe God doesn't even know if that can happen and God can't control. So God can't know if that's ultimately going to turn out that way. So we have a we have a, a fine conversation about that. We but what I appreciated that. about what Calvinism can take has, has in five points can produce a picture of God. And so I thought I, I don't want to just deconstruct. I just don't want to say there's something wrong with hell. I wanted to say there's something right with grace. And mm, that I think I, like I can that. show a picture, I think I can show a biblical picture of God in five points that conforms with the understanding that grace both actually saves and actually goes to all. So let me just go through that with people. And then 
let me anticipate that they're going to say, well, what about judgment? What about the, all these other passages? So, okay, let's walk through all those things. What about the book of Revelation? Let's walk through all of this. What about, uh, isn't this, hasn't this been declared a heresy in the history of the church some, at some point? Okay, let's, let's talk about that. And then let me come to the table and say, while we're having this conversation, let's just ask some logical questions about how can we defend the goodness of God if God is the first cause of all that is in a creation and that doesn't uh, somehow end up being good for all. So I, I, I end up with the philosophical argument, but I don't begin with it because that's not where people, at least in my world, if I put on my Southern accent, which is on a little bit right now, they're gonna wanna know, okay, all this is fine, but where is this in the Bible? If you can't show me this is in the Bible, then I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. <laughs> so yeah. I need to be able to show them, here's where I see it, here's where I see it in the Bible. And often they might not be convinced by it, but I have pointed them to a whole, set, a whole bunch of scriptures that they've either never thought of before or never allowed themselves to think of it in that light. And so I think they usually end up appreciating that I'm bringing a lot of scripture to the table. I was trying to make a joke a little bit earlier about um, being um, a Christian universalist means that at the end of the day, you can make your point and then sit back and trust that everybody's in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so you don't have to, you can make your best argument and then uh, lean on lean on the foundations of uh, what you believe. But uh, there's a lot of liberty in that, by the way. I think right. there's a lot of, and that's where I come back to, to Derek's uh, and our statement where the more dogmatic we are, uh, in, in perfect theology, Jesus being perfect theology, the more dogmatic we are in love, uh, the more liberty we have to present uh, the goodness of God and make our best case for it. And, yeah. then just and that's why I think you guys are doing a great, great job at that. Thank you. And we get to lean back and then just trust that the goodness of God wins out, that, that love wins at the end. Well, and, and to, to me, that. a culture, a culture of kindness is yeah. so important and I'm, I'm not there yet. We're working on it. Like, you know, throw me on Twitter for a couple hours and kindness might go out the window, but, uh, but perfected love is definitely casting all fear out of my life. I can tell you that for sure. And I yeah. am being changed into the image of Jesus from glory to glory. And hopefully my wife can validate that for you. Yeah. That's some good, uh, spiritual, you know, you are, you become what you behold, you know, yeah. and mm -hmm. you're, if you go through life beholding, a perfectly good, loving, heavenly parent, you know, who has your best interest in mind and everybody else's best interest in mind. And if you see all people that you run into as you're eternally reconciled already, brothers and sisters, we've just yet to fully get, fully learn how to be with each other and love each other. That's the way you're going through the world, thinking yeah. those thoughts. Yeah. That's a powerful way to live. Hey, everybody in favor of spiritual maturity, raise your hand. Okay. I like what William Paul Young says about that. He said, what, like something, I forget exactly what it is, but it's basically like, what if you treated every encounter with another human being as if it were eternal and going to yeah. be eternal? Well, yeah. It changes. Yeah, it, somewhere it, it makes, down the it line. Makes loving, it makes loving people your highest priority. Yeah, somebody asked me, what are you going to do if somebody comes up to you and they're going to kill you? And I'm going to, I think I'll just say, you know, somewhere down the line, we're going to be friends. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I believe that about you, even if you kill me. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, David, listen, if you become what you behold, then we want you there to you help us behold the greatest <laughs> taco experience that you have ever had. We, we want to, we want to salivate after we hear David's taco well, beholding story. Let me just say that, 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 okay, here's the thing about tacos. All tacos are good. 
It's like old dogs right. are good. That's okay. Right. That's like trying to say what's the, what's the perspective. It's the I, universal I taco. It's the universal <laughs> taco hood. Okay. They're all good. Now, why are tacos good? They're not just good because they have good ingredients. You can throw all kinds of ingredients into tacos and they're all good. Why are they good? They good because you eat them with your hands and they're messy. <laughs> That's why they're good. And it, if you're, you know, let's say you're having a meal with somebody and you're using fine, fine dining and, you know, you, but once the tacos come out, everything just gets informal because there's no clean way to eat a taco. You just got to, you got to pick it up. You got to lick, yeah. you got to lick the fingers. It runs the down, fingers. it runs down your hands. You know, everybody's, it's messy. And there's just <laughs> something about just the messiness of it just being, it, it feels childlike. It, we're just having fun. We're eating with our hands. We're licking our fingers. We're, and it's, you know, it, it's just, it just feels, it feels good. It feels real inclusive. And so the, I think that that's, and to me, that's why the taco thing is a really good, um, it's really good to add to your podcast because, the, you know, the taco kind of experience is, it feels very much like communion. You know, it's, yes. uh, it's Come kind on. of this, you know. <laughs> Whoa, we've just elevated it to another yeah. level. I love well, it. Yeah, I mean, Keep yeah, you're sitting there. around. Yeah, you're sitting around. You're eating tacos with people. You're having a good time. You're you're messy. Your stuff's it. going everywhere. You're trying to wipe your hands, like licking your fingers. Yeah, and yeah. there's just something about uh, you. You can't do that at some kind of a formal place, but at a taco place, everybody's. Yeah, it's like everybody's a permission to be a child, and yeah. yeah. And we're just eating tacos together. And, and hey, uh, just a side note to all you single folks out there: you'll know you'll know they're the one when you can eat a taco in front of each other. That's okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, you know, it's just it's just the experience of trying to. And tacos are even better than sandwiches because sandwiches you can still kind of manage. You know, they're That's you true. can kind of manage a sandwich, but there's no taming a taco. That's right. <laughs> the tacos got you from the beginning. And I grew up and I grew up in Texas. And uh, so I had a lot of Tex-Mex, you know, growing up. And um, the best taco is the one where you are, your nose is running, your eyes are weepy, your tongue, your tongue is on fire. And, and you'd have to take a drink of something to like cool your mouth off. But then it starts getting hot again, so you have to take another bite because you got to get right. back in on it. Yeah, that's and then right. you have to, and then and then when it's all over, you just have to endure about I don't know three or four minutes of pain, and then it dissipates. That's right. But now that's an that's a taco experience. That's a real taco experience. That's a Tex-Mex I'm, taco I'm telling experience. You, man, you gave me tingles. I got tingles <laughs> on that right there. I just had a charismatic <laughs> mythical taco experience. <laughs> Thank you, David. Yeah. <laughs> that's a charismatic experience we just had yeah. with tacos right there yeah. well i would yeah, i want to i want to get you guys on the a uh, quesomatic my, experience yeah i want to get you guys on the on my podcast and uh, i'd like to have my audience know about your podcast and i think that to me this isn't about whether or not we all and you know i enjoy saying it the way i do it but I just want to sort of create this this space where people can uh, can start to um, uh, verbalize, you know, vocalize th- this um, 
this world of inclusion yeah. and uh, this relational theology that and this high, this Trinitarian theology that's so yeah. beautiful. There's so many people that are doing that right now. And, uh, and so I, I hope that some, I'd like to have you on my podcast so that people can meet you guys and you've got a lot of great guests, a lot of great episodes. I'd love to uh, point people your direction. Yeah. I'll be honored. We'd love that. We, yes to that. Um, but before we let you go, uh, let folks know how they find you, uh, right now, where, where you're online and the book. Okay. Well, if you, uh, uh, grace saves all the necessity of Christian universalism, you know, you just, it's on Amazon and a bunch of different booksellers now. So you just type that in Beautiful. and then the, and then the grace saves all podcast. It's on all the major, um, it's on all the major podcast, uh, platforms, just go into Google and type Grace Saves All Podcast and it'll, you know, it'll come up. It's on, it's on all of them. And um, it's interesting if you go right now and you just, and you just do a, uh, a search in any podcast engine and you put in Christian universalism or universal salvation, my podcast will come up immediately. Yeah. So the people aren't finding me because they're looking for David Artman. I am at davidartman.net if you want to go there. That's where all the podcasts are sitting online. But uh, people aren't going there because of David Artman. They're going there because they're searching online for Christian universalism and oh, universal sure. salvation. Yeah. Uh, so that's why that's uh, I want to be sure that anybody that's out there in the world that is uh, maybe starting to wonder about this or thinking about this, if they're looking for resources, they 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 will be able to obviously find my podcast and my information. So I'm, yeah. I'm open for business. I'm here for you. And and the other thing is that we'll, uh, when Zondervan publishes it, we'll know it's absolutely legit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's with the, it might take a few years, but you know, eventually Zondervan's going to, Zondervan's going to publish this. And so, right. well, I hope that I, I do hope that, you know, 20 years from now that uh, somebody that, you know, that evangelicalism will have, will have gotten to the point where people won't be automatically disfellowshipped uh, because right. they want to think about this or they would like to practice their Christian Amen. faith that way. Amen. Amen. Safe place for questions. Yep. And thank you, bro. Thank you. For, I, I know what it, I know um, the work, we both know what it takes to write a book and the time that you've put in and some of the flack I'm sure you've taken. So hey, you know what? This is like thanking a surfer for catching a wave. <laughs> David, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm, I'm not kidding, man. I'm going to... I I need to get with you about buying cases of your book because I am handing this out to people. I'm not kidding. Well, it's, this is just fun, okay? Yeah. This is not. Yeah. It's you know this is not a this is not some dreary job. This is not some burden that I'm carrying around. You know, I've discovered something. Name. Yeah, I've discovered some good news, and I'm having good fun news. sharing with sharing it, meeting people. Yeah, this is. I'm going to have a better day because I got to have this conversation with you guys. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank appreciate you. It. Yeah, we yeah. feel the same. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Hey, guys. So glad you joined us on Rethinking God with Tacos. You can find me, Jason Clark, online at afamilystory.org, where I encourage you to sign up on our mailing list. We send out an email twice a month letting you know about new podcasts, articles, and new books or products that we have coming out. Plus, occasionally, I'll keep you up on my schedule where I'm traveling. My Twitter handle is at Jason Clark is I'm on Instagram under the same handle and you can find me on Facebook as well. Yeah. And my name is Derek Turner. Jason and I love 
that you're listening to us. Thank you for all your feedback. Please write in, let us know what's going on in your life. But uh, we are pursuing a mission to help people rethink God. And we thank you for being a part of it. Uh, You can find me at Pastor Derek T on all the socials. And then, of course, I pastor a church here in Charlotte, North Carolina called River Church, rivercharlotte.com. Come and join us. We'd love to have you. Hey, all of these podcasts are available on all the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google. Yeah. Hey, make sure and like, share, and throw a review out there. Let people know. We love good reviews on the podcast. It helps people find us. That's right. So if this isn't a podcast that you enjoy, (laughs) then please Promote it, share it, give it a good five-star rating. I like that. That's a good idea. Hey, love doing this journey with you. Praying grace and wonder over you today.